Hello, and welcome to another episode of Peer Connections, a podcast produced by the Global Peer Financing Association, otherwise known as GPFA. I am Brooke Gilman, Secretary of GPFA. GPFA is excited to bring you a special podcast today focused on ESG investing and financing in the North American and UK markets. This podcast was originally recorded as part of a GPFA member subgroup meeting on the topic, and we're very pleased to be able to share with you for the first time the expert content that our members benefited from during their meeting. I want to first introduce the moderator of the session to our listeners. Lisa Mantello is a lawyer with the law firm Osler, Hoskin and Harcourt in Toronto, Canada. Lisa is a partner with Osler, specializing in the banking and financial services sector, and is also a board member for GPFA. I now will turn the discussion over to Lisa to introduce the expert speakers joining her. We've put together a panel of industry experts, and we are also very lucky and happy to have Professor Gordon Clark, who is a professorial fellow at St. Edmund Hall at Oxford. He's director emeritus at the Smith School of Enterprise and the Environment at Oxford University and co-director of the Oxford Zurich Research Program. He is the independent chair of the IP Group's Ethics and ESG Committee, and he's an advisor to a handful of fintech startups in the UK and the US. He's been an employer-nominated trustee on the Oxford Staff Pension Scheme for the past 10 years and has advised pension funds and related institutions on the design and delivery of DB and DC pensions. So thank you very much, Gordon, for joining us this morning. Next, I'd like to introduce you to Timothy Hughes, who is a partner at Osler, Hoskin, and Harcourt. So Tim leads the capital markets tax practice at Osler, and he has been involved in structuring ESG investments in Canada for capital markets. Next, I'd like to introduce you to Michael Gimmis, who is a partner also at Osler. And Michael is the co-chair of Osler's Capital Markets Group. He's nationally and internationally recognized as a leading capital markets and cross-border corporate lawyer in Canada. Michael has also been at the forefront of structuring the ESG investing in Canada. Next, I would like to introduce Oliver Moyer, who is a partner at Slaughter and May. And Ollie's a member of the Infrastructure, Energy, and Natural Resources Practice Group, and is also an expert at ESG investing from an infrastructure perspective. And lastly, I'd like to introduce you to Azadeh Nasiri, who's also a partner at Slaughter and May, and who has a broad financing practice covering acquisition and general bank financings, and also has significant experience with ESG investing from a financial perspective. So thank you very much to all the speakers for joining us. And I'd like to just start by saying that ESG investing has really become quite significant to pension plans worldwide and to beneficial owners everywhere. So that's why we're having this session. There's been quite a demand for people to speak about ESG. And I think I'd like to call on both Michael to speak to ESG investing from a North American perspective and Azadeh to speak about it from the UK market and the European perspective. I'll kick off if that's okay. Thanks so much, Lisa. The last five to seven years, we've seen a huge growth in ESG debt financing in UK and Europe more generally. And when we use the term ESG financing, what we mean is an umbrella term that covers a really broad category of debt products. And I think I find it easiest to sort of divide them into two buckets. Bucket one, what I'd call sort of use of proceeds products, where the borrower, the issuer, has to actually use the proceeds of the debt that's been raised for an ESG-specific purpose. And then the second category of product, what we call 
whole business instruments. So the borrower, the issuer, isn't actually required to use the proceeds for an ESG purpose. But instead, what happens is that the debt package or the pricing of the product that's on the table is linked in some way to the performance of the borrower as against a set of agreed KPIs, ESG KPIs. In the first bucket, what we tend to find are green bonds, green loans, sustainability bonds, and social bonds. So green bonds and green loans, those are where the proceeds have to be used for a green environmental project. Social bonds sort of do what they say on the tin, the proceeds have to be used for an eligible social project. And sustainability bonds is a term that we use where there's a mixture of the two, where the borrower, the issuer is using the proceeds for a mix of eligible green environmental and social projects. What I think is quite interesting from an investor perspective, at least in the UK European market, is that we don't actually have a mechanism, a contractual mechanism in the bonds for enforcing the use of proceeds. So there's no, for example, events of default or put rights or even information covenants that would allow those rights to be enforced, even if they sort of did exist on paper. And so investors very much have to rely on the intention of the issuer and the identity of the issuer and the reputation of the issuer when they're looking at these investments from their own perspective, making sure that they're mitigating against greenwashing risks. So when we're acting on the investor side, we spend quite a lot of time when a bond is involved doing diligence on the entity that's going to be doing the issuance and really reading the sort of risk factors very carefully. And then the second bucket, the sort of the whole business instruments, those are much more flexible. So they can be used by any company, any borrower, as long as they've got some form of ESG performance targets that they'd like to meet, and they're able to find that investors willing to invest. And the terms that we tend to use are sustainability linked bonds and sustainability linked loans. The first of them was issued in 2017. So now much more market, and it tends to be more of a pricing impact than a covenant package impact, at least in the UK European market. So in the investment grade, we tend to see pricing impact of around two and a half basis points. And in the leverage space, it's about 10 basis points. But again, I think one of the really interesting aspects of it from an investor perspective is that investors are looking to invest in green products and encouraging and incentivizing a set of behaviors. And yet the way that the pricing mechanism works, investors do better out of it if the borrower doesn't in fact meet the KPI requirements. And so one of the things we've been working on with our lender clients is trying to come up with structures that at least on paper don't make it look like the debt investor is looking to do better or secretly hoping for poorer performance as against the ESG metrics. Thank you, Azadeh. And Michael, has that been a similar experience in the North American capital markets? Can you just please comment on that? Sure. Yeah. So the way the North American market is developed is it's actually taken the European market as a model and has various issuers across different industries in North America have taken the principles and the bond structures from Europe and have kind of tailored them to North America. And what we found is there's a couple of terms, which I think I'll just use as a day alluded to. So what the issuer is looking for when they do a green bond or do a sustainability link bond is something called the greenium, which is basically the discount to pricing. So the financial benefit to them of committing to do these green projects or committing to set up these sustainability link bonds. And then as, as a day alluded to, there's, you know, at least for sustainability link bonds, there's a penalty at the back end. 
So issuers look for the greenium, and then you know if they don't meet the targets that they say they're going to meet, then there'll be a financial consequence to them. So it's quite an interesting structure. And the other thing we've noticed in North America is that each issuer has to decide what works for them, because not all issuers are able to find eligible green projects or eligible social projects. So in the example in Canada was a number of large telecom companies in Canada, two of the largest being Bell Canada and the other being TELUS. And they approached it differently. Bell Canada did a social bond or a use of proceeds bond directed towards green and social projects. And TELUS did a sustainability linked bond, which which had a financial consequence if they didn't achieve certain uh, greenhouse gas emission reductions. And I think each issuer had to decide from TELUS's perspective, they couldn't identify specific projects that they thought that they could do that were meaningful. So they thought, well, that's why a sustainability link bond works better for them. And then there's no restrictions on their use of proceeds. They can use it for whatever they want to use it for, but there still is a financial consequence if they don't meet the targets. As with everything, it's very issuer specific and industry specific as to what will work. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that, Mike. That's very interesting. And it does offer sort of a different view in North America than it sounds, you know, what is happening in the UK and Europe. So thank you. Now we'd like to turn to Gordon. Gordon, you have really been a pioneer in the ESG market. You've been researching this for decades. Can you give us a bit of an overview and set the stage? You know, where has the market been and where do you think the market is going? Okay, well, thanks very much for the opportunity to be on the call. At Oxford, we convened in 2001 and 2002 workshops with the sort of nascent parts of the industry. That is the people who were developing TrueCost, the people who were developing Carbon Disclosure Project, Robert Monk's governance people, 2001, 2002, that was the start of the industry. And I don't think participants at that time thought that it would be anything like the scale it is today. And to give some indication of what happened, those startups basically were taken to market and absorbed by very much larger information management companies for the global financial services industry in about 2015, 16, and 17. And the consequences of that is actually it's gone from a nascent industry, startup land, no one thought that it would really claim the centre of the market, to now in 2021, it's really on everyone's fingertips or lips as an important part of an investment management process. It's basically offered to the market that is offered to institutions like pension funds, sovereign wealth funds and the like. It's offered increasingly also to family offices. And what you can see is a sort of division in the market starting to occur between those providers, investment providers that use ESG metrics and measures through their automated trading systems And on the other side of the market, increasingly impact investing, sort of bespoke investment processes that are really drilling down into the data that is provided through these metrics and measures on a bespoke basis. So the market is both enormous at one level, but it's increasingly specialised around some of the kind of the key drivers in different industry sectors. 
So, for example, in some industry sectors, it's all about climate change. It's all about carbon and carbon sort of management and pricing. Whereas in other sectors, the S part, the social part, has also claimed sort of center stage as well. The final point I'd make is that early on, we thought that E, separate from S and G, would sort of claim a sort of center part of the market in its own right. But increasingly, we found in our own research with major corporations around the world that a well-governed company is a prerequisite for being an environment-focused company. And so we've done advisory work for companies like Diageo, PepsiCo on a global basis. And we've looked at the governance processes whereby you might implement an environment strategy. And we've come to recognize that Governance is an essential ingredient in getting the E and the S right. So that's where we've come to. There are some amazing statements out there about the significance of the ESG market. They're talking $50 trillion or something to that effect by some accounts. But it is, as I say, it's a market of different shapes and sizes, some more specialised than others. And I think, again, if you ask the people who were there at the start of the industry in 2001-2, it's an astonishing growth over that past 20 years. So, again, that's my take on where we are, but also where we've come from. Great. Thanks, Gordon. That's very interesting that there is a correlation between corporate governance and a focus on the environment. That's fantastic findings. Now moving to everyone on the panel and Ollie, we can start with you. I know no one has a crystal ball, but where do you think the market is going and how does it impact investing strategies? Thanks, Lisa. Yeah, I think one area I'd like to touch on, perhaps unsurprisingly, given that I'm primarily an energy lawyer, is the energy transition. Clearly, it's an area of massive focus for everyone, particularly with COP26 coming up in Glasgow in November, um, the shocking conclusions of the IPCC report last month, and also the current state of play in the wholesale energy markets, which are certainly making front page news today in the UK. And pension funds and other institutional investors are looking at their investment strategies and ascertaining what role can and should they be playing in contributing towards net zero. And I don't think it's a massive exaggeration to say that pension funds could make or break the energy transition. And in terms of the roles they have for that going forward, I mean, firstly, the way in which pension funds exercise influence over companies within their existing portfolio. So a prime example of that was the three US pension funds supporting engine number one's activist strategy with Exxon earlier this summer. I think I saw that the CalPERS were on the call. And of course, you can take the view that it isn't actually in the interests of global decarbonisation for pension funds and other institutional investors to be wholesale exiting fossil fuel companies, because you could argue that's just moving the problem rather than solving it. And I'm of the view personally that pension funds can play a more valuable role in applying pressure on fossil fuel and other companies within its portfolio to decarbonise in, in a credible and sustainable way, rather than divesting to buyers who quite possibly may or may not be as willing to act as a good corporate citizen. No doubt there'll be strong views in the call on that. We can probably touch on that later. Secondly, perhaps most importantly, pension funds will provide a critical role in providing the huge amounts of capital that will be needed to fundamentally transform energy systems to meet net zero targets. I mean, Gordon mentioned the sort of astounding sort of figures we're talking about throughout ESG generally, but it's anticipated that with 
meeting net zero, over $120 trillion of investment we needed by 2050. That's obviously a huge challenge, but it clearly presents huge opportunities, whether that's in investment in renewables, um, battery or other energy storage, electricity infrastructure, EV companies, demand response technologies, or other technologies like hydrogen and carbon capture usage and storage. And I'll touch on the latter two, hydrogen and CCUS, because they are particularly hot topics. I have, sort of, I have emails coming into my inbox every day talking about a new hydrogen project. And there's pretty fierce debate about the role that these technologies can and should play in, in decarbonising those hard to abate sectors. But what's very clear in the UK and also across Europe is that hydrogen is envisaged to play a very significant role in the decades to come and become by far our, our second largest component in our energy mix by 2050. And in the UK, perhaps slightly differently from most other jurisdictions in Europe, we're also looking at CCUS to, to play a significant role in meeting our targets. But creating a hydrogen economy from scratch, rolling out carbon capture, the associated pipeline storage infrastructure will require an enormous amount of capital. And that large scale investment, particularly from pension funds and institutional investors, is going to require those projects to have investable business models. And given the prohibitive cost at the moment of those nascent technologies, the first of a kind risk involved, those models need to be designed and supported by government in a similar way that it is done with renewables in the UK and indeed across Europe. And the good news in the UK on that front is that the government has published consultations on the proposed business models for CCUS and hydrogen. And that moves us that step or two closer to making these sectors, sectors that are actually institutional investors rather than just industry players using their own balance sheet as part of their own decarbonisation agenda can participate in. So very briefly, for hydrogen, the government proposed a contract for different structure, which is similar to that so successfully used in the renewable sector, which is essentially designed to enable hydrogen to compete with the existing high carbon counterfactual fuels by paying a strike price to a producer of hydrogen, which is based on the difference between an agreed strike price reflecting the anticipated cost of building and operating the project in return, and a reference price being the amount of money the generator, broadly speaking, is going to make from selling it. And then finally, on CCUS, there are different aspects of the value chain and CFD models applicable to the generate and to the capture side of things. But interestingly, certainly from an institutional investor perspective, a separate regulated asset base model is being proposed for the transport and infrastructure, uh, transport and storage model, sorry, where under that economic regulation model, a transport and storage company will receive a long-term inflation-linked allowed revenue stream paid for by users of the infrastructure with government standing behind certain um, big-ticket risks like leakage liability. So with the existence of these sorts of models developing in the UK and throughout Europe, um, it may well be possible that institutional capital starts finding its way into these projects perhaps sooner than might have been anticipated. Great. Thanks for that, Ollie. Michael, same question to you obviously from a North American perspective, where do you think the market's going? Do you think, will there be a trend in similar issuances to the TELUS bond that you mentioned? Is that something that you see happening more and more? Yeah. So TELUS was the first sustainability-linked bond in Canada. That was followed by another sustainability-linked bond, uh, Enbridge Pipelines. So I actually think it is going to be a growing market because it just makes too much sense for both issuers and investors to a certain extent. For the issuer, they are getting 
you know, they look to get the greenium, which will reduce their borrowing costs over the life of the bond. And with the penalty on the back end to keep them honest and meet their targets. And the issue, however, will be uh, for a number of issuers, both I think Canada, the United States, wherever, is, is setting up the framework internally for their organization that will provide the KPIs, the specific unique things for their company that they will need to achieve in order to basically have a marketable bond or a marketable instrument. And it's not as obvious as it seems. In the TELUS example, they focused on scope one, what are called scope one and scope two greenhouse gas reduction or emissions reduction. And because those are emissions within their control, largely within their control, and as opposed to scope three greenhouse gas emissions, which are kind of indirect emissions, but the scope three emissions are much larger than scope one and scope two emissions. So it's this balance between what can you control, what can you actually achieve, how do we measure it, how can we report it? And so I think that's where the challenge is going to be. But it just makes too much financial sense for everybody involved not to try and not for the market to develop in a meaningful way. Thank you. Thanks, Michael. Um, Tim, same question to you based on you know, what you've seen. What do you think? Where do you think the, the market is going and you know, how will that impact um, investment strategies? I think innovation will continue, both in terms of structure and the types of eligible uses for the proceeds as a tax person, usually we're brought in early just to see what the possibilities are in terms of paying out what I would call non-plain vanilla coupons or returns that aren't linked to just the overall enterprise of the issuer. And there can be challenges there, but what it does reveal is that people are really thinking, should we derive a return from the particular eligible project alone, or should we take return from the enterprise and pay that on the instrument, for example? So there are lots of things going on in terms of innovative structuring of these instruments. Great. Thank you. Gordon, I see you nodding. So now over to you. Do you agree with what's been said? Are these the same sort of predictions for you in terms of what are the challenges that the markets will face? Yes, I was nodding along because I do think these initiatives are very important. I think one of the lessons I've learned is that not every pension fund is born equal. Not every pension fund has the internal capabilities or indeed the knowledge base to understand that these instruments exist, but also that they're investable and they can be managed in either through intermediaries or directly in ways that realise a long-term benefit on two levels, obviously a rate of return, but also something for the green transition. I think in large part, the investment management industry has been slow to do this. It's slow to educate their clients about this, but also the consulting industry has not had the depth of resources as yet to really be a medium through which to make these deals between the pension fund sector and those companies that want to make a difference. So I think there's a lot of capability building to be done particularly on the pension fund side, but also on the asset consulting side to really make a difference on this. Right, understood. And as a day, anything additional to add in terms of from a finance perspective in, in Europe and the UK, where do you think the market is going? Is it are similar trends to the, what you've talked about at the beginning? Give us your predictions. 
I think in the next couple of years, we're going to see more of the sustainability linked products for all the reasons that Michael touched on. I think there are more flexible products, they're available to a wider borrower base, including banks and other institutions. So I think we'll see those products really take over the use of proceeds products or at least get close to it. And I also think, you know, KPIs and data is really a hot topic and a focus point at the moment. And over the next year, we're going to see both investors and borrowers issuers try and strike a balance between the requirements that they're going to be subject to in terms of disclosure, the requirement around KPIs needing to be objectively verifiable, externally verifiable, as a, and, and, you know, more regulation on the one hand, as against innovation and the need to sort of have products which are capable of reacting to technological change. So, you know, what's green today won't necessarily be green in two years time. And one of the tasks that I think we have in terms of matching the demand and supply on the debt product side is to make sure that we are coming up with products that are flexible enough to adjust. And we've seen some of that in the market. So last year, for example, Chanel did an issuance that catered for it. But I think we're going to have to be more innovative, more thoughtful, and have more bespoke arrangements. Thank you, Azadeh. Now, uh, changing gears a little bit, Tim, tell us what do you think we should be thinking about from a tax perspective with ESG investing? Sure. And can I ask you to put up my slide? So really, I've divided this into two parts, and they mirror what Azadeh was saying about use of proceeds and then the sustainability division between these instruments. And you might say, we're pension plans, we don't pay tax. Is this fellow in the wrong presentation? No, because there are a couple of things that are important. The first one is is withholding tax on the coupon on these instruments. It's possible to the extent that the investment is a use of proceeds product, that the actual coupon will derive its value in some way from the project, the eligible project. Where there's streaming of that type, it's possible that that bond might be subject to withholding tax in the jurisdiction of the issuer because it becomes more equity-like rather than debt-like. So that's the point. That's a point to diligence. The second point I've got here relates to sustainability-linked bonds where an issuer has to pay a penalty at the back end where the target is not met. That can result in accrual over the life of the instrument for tax purposes because Governments are quite keen to ensure that you can't just push your return to the end and pay tax on it at that time, but rather pay tax over the term of the instrument. Does that matter to you? Probably not, but it does matter to taxable investors. So that limits the liquidity of the instrument. If instruments are being designed only for pension plans because the tax doesn't work for taxable investors, then you have to think about that and consider the value impact that that might have on the instrument. Thank you, Tim. Now, our last question is for the whole panel. So taking into account that many of the pension plans worldwide really do have these ESG mandates now, I feel, you know, as though with all of our pension plans clients, pension plans have put in considerable resources to hiring teams of people to deliver on these ESG mandates. So with all of that in mind, there is the supply of ESG investing matching the demand for it, given that, you know, there are all these beneficial owners who are looking to make these investments. And I guess the second part of the question is who's driving this? Are the investments being structured because this is what pension plans and beneficial owners want, or is it more on the issuer side? 
The very first one that Michael and I did, it was very much pension plan requirements were taken into account in the structuring. And I think as more examples come forward, especially around these issues, I'm just going to start to talk about tax again, I'm sorry. But if you have a bond that is suitable for pension plans and perhaps not suitable for anyone else, then pension plan investors become very, very important. And I think can really turn a bond from being structured like this to being structured like that. So I think you have a great deal of influence because you are a primary target market for this type of instrument. Do you agree, Michael? Absolutely. So the experience we had on the TELUS bond was, I thought, quite illustrative in terms of before the bond was launched, there was a discussion among a wide swath of investors to gauge. And as Tim alluded to, it was actually on the tax point is to, you know, did they care (laughs) about the potential phantom income accrual? And we thought pension funds may not necessarily, you know, they would be indifferent, but the feedback was, we want to participate in this. We want to understand it because it is going to drive the pricing on the bond. It's going to drive the return on the bond. So even though you may say, well, I, you know, we don't have that much of an influence because we are agnostic, actually you do because it will impact your financial return. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I could uh, just jump right. in and say yeah, of, of the ESG industry movement was that in some respects it created its own market. Now, it went through an open door towards doing that, but equally you could say about these structured products that as the flow becomes larger and as the pricing becomes more transparent, I think pension funds, somewhat disappointed at the ESG industry, will be looking for these initiatives, and particularly if they're of a scale that allows them to deploy sufficient capital. So I think there's a chance to make a market here as much as follow a market. I totally agree with that. And actually what we're seeing is, you know, there are a number of direct lenders who are coming to us, telling us what they're looking for and asking us to help sort of match them up with issuers and borrowers who might be able to tick those boxes for them. Because not all borrowers and issuers will be able to meet the criteria that a particular investor is looking for. So I really completely agree with with Gordon on this. I think there is a huge opportunity to make something here. And I think better information and better visibility on the advisor side in terms of what is being looked for will help us match the demand and supply side better. Just I'm going to jump in there as well. So because what the issuer is looking for is the greenium. And what the investor can say to the issuer is say, we don't think your target's ambitious enough. If you want a five basis point greenium, we don't think your target's ambitious enough in terms of reducing greenhouse gas emissions. So if you want that greenium, you're going to have to design a product or particularly in a sustainability link bond that we're going to look at and say, yeah, I'm willing to invest in it because I think it's meaningful. And it does drive towards the ultimate goal, which is reducing greenhouse gas emissions in a way that's going to ensure that global temperature doesn't rise above 1.5 Celsius, which is what underpins, at least in the greenhouse gas space, a lot of what's driving this. I agree. I think consequential products are really going to be important. So much of the ESG movement is sort of divorced of consequences. We're doing the right thing, but we can't observe, if you like, the consequences, the impact. So uh, consequences matter a lot, I think, in the longer term, in terms of the design of products, but also 
getting buy-in to those products. I have a follow-up question for you, Gordon, or maybe for anyone on the panel. So, you know, we've talked a lot about pension plans, but when does the need slip into the retail market? Is it individuals saying, you know, I, I want to have these green bonds. These are my principles. This is what I stand for. You know, we've talked about this institutionally, but is the next level of this at the retail level? Great question. So my fund is both DB and DC, and I've struggled to get my fellow trustees to understand that what we're doing on the DB side in terms of green investment and the like is meaningful for the DC participants. They think, oh, well, DC plan participants aren't going to be interested. But I keep saying, no, no, let's design it into the default fund so that we sort of take choice out of the equation and actually give them access to, if you like, future returns that are meaningful, but also market competitive. So I think the retail side, if we're talking DC, or if we're talking about individual savers, is going to be a challenge because I think it's going to have to be pre-packaged in a way that actually takes learning out of the equation, so to speak, and gives us sort of a very clear pathway to choice and decision-making. Otherwise, you're going to confuse people with science. Mm -hmm. From my perspective of looking primarily being in the field of investing in and financing sustainable infrastructure and assets and all the companies that own, operate, develop them, I think a there is a definite mismatch between supply and demand at the moment. And yeah. probably a couple of reasons for that. I think we touched briefly on metrics. I think the, in the absence of suitable and standardised metrics and accepted definition of what qualifies as sustainable investing, the demand for those assets, which clearly obviously are sustainable investments and particularly those where the technology and business models are tried and tested and the growth opportunities self-evident, there is enormous demand there. And I think secondly, there are new entrants to the market from existing companies and adjacent industries looking to reorient or, or transform their strategy. So renewables is, is an obvious case in point, certainly in the, in the UK, where there's been talk of renewables bubble, prices have been described as sort of crazy by various CEOs because the multiples at which renewable companies are changing hands are, are pretty extraordinary, particularly fueled by fossil fuel companies looking to turbocharge their diversification strategy and transform themselves into broader energy companies by, by acquiring existing platforms. There will be huge opportunities in renewables, for example, for pension funds, but they're going to have a lot of people competing for the same assets, certainly in the short term. Great. Thank you for that, Ollie. I think we're going to turn to some questions. What are the obvious signs of greenwashing and how can investors protect themselves? Greenwashing is pervasive. How can you tell if it's greenwashing or real? A retail investor probably can't. A pension fund can if they have the governance structure and advisory services that go deep rather than superficial. So much of my life is about confronting an investment manager who takes us for granted and basically does a blah, blah type presentation as if it's convincing. And so we've had to dig underneath actually to learn more about what the language is, but also where the telltale signs of fiscation lie. So I think it's on the institutional side informing ourselves, but also having advisors who are themselves informed is really important. Otherwise, we really are in a funny land. 
And Gordon, I think that brings us into a topic that people always talk about with ESG, which is metrics. So I guess the follow on question for you or anyone on the panel is, do you ever foresee a situation where there are global metrics to some of this? And in a way that it's become standardized, so then greenwashing is not a problem. The answer is no, and we wouldn't want it. I think it's a healthy competition, both on the provider side to have a race to the top in terms of metrics and measures. I fear for the life of the industry if government was to actually regulate what a proper metric and measure is on sort of ESG. I'm not saying that the industry can be trusted, (laughs) uh, but I think what's been shown over the past 20 years is innovation, promoting innovation is the only way forward to higher standards. So that's my take. I would love regulation, but actually I fear regulation in this space. There is some structure to these financial instruments. Like in order for you to have a sustainability link bond, you do have to obtain a second party opinion from an opinion provider that gives a view as to whether or not the bond aligns with the International Capital Markets Association sustainability link bond principles. And I think this market will develop. And I think people will, as more issuers enter the market, there will be more, hopefully, uniformity or views on whether certain targets are aggressive or not, aggressive enough to warrant a greenium or what size of greenium an issuer can get. So there is a structure that exists in the market today, but I do think it still needs to develop more. There needs to be more deals and more of an educated investor base that can challenge issuers on targets that they set and whether or not they truly are designed to achieve keeping worldwide global temperatures below 1.5 by 2030 or whatever the reference date is. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thanks, Michael. We have another question in the chat. So how should we be thinking about measuring outcomes from sustainability-linked products? Should beneficial or asset owners remain reactive to what the market brings us? Maybe the second part of that question someone can speak to. I do think there is value in peer-to-peer determination on what is a good standard or what might be a standard to aim for in the longer term. I think pension funds as entities are independent enough that they might actually be plausible sources for doing so. As we all know, though, corralling pension funds to do that kind of thing is a bit of a challenge. Maybe market makers like yourselves could actually broker those types of conversations. But it will take the industry, both the provider side, but also the client side, that is pension funds, to really act in concert on these things. And I think there's incentives on both sides for that. But ultimately, I trust the pension fund sector more than the provider sector. Great. Thanks, Gordon. So we have another question. 30 years ago, Wall Street changed the finance landscape by hiring math and physics PhDs, since it was easier to hire quants and teach them the necessary finance than for financial experts to learn the advanced technical mathematics. I think we all know this. By the same token, do you think that we will see more pension hiring environmental scientists, engineers, and have them work alongside the financial professionals? That's a very good question. The Smith School at Oxford and similar organizations have had huge influence over time. 
being brokers of scientific knowledge. And I think in some respects, a reputation and trust in the organization sponsoring that knowledge is as important as the knowledge itself. It's harder to think, I mean, imagine my pension fund hired a scientist to do climate change. Fantastic, except that how do we teach them to translate that knowledge into product and into participant welfare? So I think I can imagine that really big pension funds may well develop a green capacity, but I think it better be located quite close to the investment team and or answer to the board rather than it being a sort of standalone expert group. So that's how I think about it. Certainly, if you flip it on the issuer side or even on the bank provider side, all of them have internal professionals devoted to sustainable investing. And many of them do have a science background to help them understand the choice of targets or the choice of different aspects of a green financing product to on the bank side to help issuers develop it, on the issuer side to implement it. So there is a kind of a natural, if a pension fund is truly devoted to being involved in the space, you need some expertise to be able to make good, sound investment decisions. And that may include science professionals. And that comes back to the previous question of how do you protect yourself against greenwashing claims? Well, you need to have the people within your organization to diligence the information that's provided and know what information to ask for in order to verify the claims being made by the relevant entities you're financing or investing into. Therefore, obviously, you need people with the right expertise, which may well mean slightly more engineers and scientists than, than quants. It may not be that you necessarily need to have those within your organization as long as you have access to advisors who are able to provide that. So it may be that, you know, initially it wouldn't be somebody in-house who'd be doing that. And that's what we're seeing with a lot of clients, that they don't necessarily have somebody, depending on sort of what their investment profile is, they don't necessarily have somebody in-house, but they've set up good relationships with providers who can input on these sorts of issues. On the upside, what we've noticed at Oxford is there's a huge appetite for the MBA students to have access to environment-related issues. And in fact, actually, the university offers a one plus one MBA program, first year environmental science and management, second year MBA. And that's really making a difference. You can see in LinkedIn, actually, the sort of building up of this capacity amongst 30 and 40 year olds. And in the UK, at least, you're going to need that capacity and expertise to meet reporting requirements. So we've announced here new sustainability disclosure requirements, which can go beyond the task force on climate-related financial disclosures by requiring entities to report on their impact on the climate and the environment, rather than the impact of the climate environment on them. So and when I say their impact on the environment, that includes via the relevant financial products that they're offering or investing in. So in order to meet reporting requirements, that expertise will be needed. We have a couple more questions, and I think we should try to get to them before our time's up. So the next one is, do you see international cooperation to support the United Nations agenda for 2030, which is goal number seven, affordable, reliable, sustainable, modern energy for all? And what do you think the challenges are to get there? 
we're only going to achieve that objective and other affordable clean energy objectives worldwide if there is international cooperation. That's why COP26 is so important in building on the momentum that we've got leading up to COP26. And actually renewable energy is can extend energy to huge areas for Africa, for example, where remote areas where you can have renewable energy, which doesn't need to be connected to a grid, which leads off to a massive gas-fired power station, can actually go a very long way in improving the access to electricity for, for a lot of people around the world. The challenge is ultimately going to be who pays for it. So especially with we in the developed world are going to have to spend a huge amount of money changing our energy systems, but then there is a responsibility to subsidise developing world to do so and build out their energy systems in a sustainable way. So as with everything, I think it's going to come down to um, what commitments each national government is committing to and what we're doing to help other countries in developing parts of the world do the same. Thanks for that, Ollie. One last question, which I think it seems quite accurate based on what we've talked about. From the conversation, it seems that the S in ESG takes a backseat to the E. Is that a fair assessment based on the initiatives invested in ESG? I mean, you know, maybe we can talk just briefly about the differences in the UK market versus the North American market. Is this accurate? Originally, the E was a marginal player on the S and the G. And though over time, the urgency for humanity of the E has come to swamp the S. Nonetheless, a kind of comprehensive understanding of the E and say, for example, in particularly in developing economies in Africa, would require very close attention to the S. So, and it's just as I said, starting off, that the relationship between E and G is actually quite intimate and significant. Mm -hmm. Sort of delivering on the E in Africa is going to require a close attention to the S. So I think they're handmaidens, if you like, in a Margaret Atwood sense, not doing so. I agree with that. Yeah. I think in the, in the sort of the market, in terms of the practical side of it that we're seeing, I think that is a fair assessment in terms of what's been issued. Until about February 2021, we weren't really seeing much by way of sort of social bond assurances other than coming out of governments, public agencies, those sorts of institutions. It was really through the pandemic and COVID that we started to see more social bonds. So I think part of the flexibility of these instruments has been quite interesting to see. So more insurers have used COVID objectives and criteria to issue social bonds. And, and we are seeing it more on the agenda. So I have a couple of clients who are looking at it in terms of focusing on whether there's an issue that can be done around racism or other forms of discrimination and, and diversity, which is obviously a massive topic also at, at the moment. So I think it's a fair assessment, but it's come more to the front line in the last year, I'd say. In some ways, the E is, at least on the sustainably linked bond side, is, is more easily capable of setting targets and having reference KPIs. I think the S, it's more challenging. So then the S tends to be more use of proceeds bonds, but we are certainly seeing more of them. But obviously, each has its unique characteristics. That's a very good point that it's different. There aren't objective measures in the same way. So that does make a lot of sense. I think we are out of time. I want to thank everyone on the panel for joining us. This was very interesting. So thank you all for taking the time. Thank you all for attending. Rob, any last words to close? Thanks, Lisa. I really appreciate the panel time. Really appreciate your time. And the one point 
I want to bring up is what Gordon Clark brought up here today was peer-to-peer, and this is GPFA is about peer-to-peer. And peer-to-peer, I never thought about peer-to-peer, the impact it would have on ESG. So this is a new topic that we would love to take it to the next step. And we, with your help, at some point, we could continue this discussion. And the last point on United Way, the agenda, goal number seven. Again, the point was brought up of how do we get pension plans working together? And I think this is a good start that we could continue to work together to make a big change because pension plans do have a big impact in the investment strategy and where does capital get directed? Thank you for listening to another episode of Peer Connections by the Global Peer Financing Association. We hope you enjoyed this episode on ESG investing. And again, we're very thankful to the expert speakers that joined us for the GPFA subgroup meeting on ESG investing. Thank you again. And thank you to Lisa Mantello for leading and moderating the discussion. If you have any ideas for future episodes that you would like GPFA to publish, please do reach out to GPFA. We are all ears and excited to bring you future content from GPFA. Thank you for listening to Peer Connections.